Hello, Secret Keepers. We've all heard about playing cat and mouse, but today's guest has helped introduce the world to a new trope, shark and octopus. Today, we talk to Laya Gonzalez of Wonderbow Games about the story of kelp, publishing games, surviving Kickstarter, and the European game market. That and so much more on today's episode of the Megamoth Studios Super Secret Podcast. Don't tell anyone about it. Welcome back to the show, Secret Keepers. I'm your host, parody theme song writing phenom, Joel Watts. Joined, as always, by... Dark Ages Joel Apologist, Danny. No need to apologize for that guy, Danny. He was awesome. He was cool. He definitely had a lineage mm-hmm. that you know, made it suspect. all the way to America. Mm-hmm. And suspect. today we are joined... <laughs> and today we are joined by Laya Gonzalez of, Un- of Wonderbow Games... Hi, Laya. How are you doing today? Hi, I'm doing good. Uh, it's already very late here, but I'm still in a good mood. <laughs> well, thank you Excellent. for uh, staying on late with us. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad to hear you're still in a good mood. We'll try to make sh- we'll try to get through all of your wonderful information about Kickstarter and about kelp and about just being in the game industry. We'll try to get this conversation going fast so you can get to bed soon. Uh, but before we <laughs> get to that conversation. Let's get to the truly hard-hitting question of the, and that is the question of the week. Are you ready for this? Okay, this week's question, I think it, it could be a controversial one. This could be an entire podcast worth of question, just so you know. So you know, <laughs> we'll we'll try to keep it short. But what do you hope George R. R. Martin handles differently in the final books of A Song of Ice and Fire versus what the final season of the television show did? Oh, that is a whole podcast for sure. <laughs> so, first of all, Daenerys shouldn't be portrayed as badly as she was portrayed in the series. So, mm. that's it. Then we should get a, a like more story about Arya traveling the world after all, I think. Um, mm-hmm. I like that Sansa becomes the queen. That's that should be said. Yeah, that's um, good. I agree and, with that. I, I was yeah. a big San, Sansa stan. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I saw, actually saw really cool YouTube videos how the uh, last episode was re-edited so that it made sense uh, oh, from really? people that just yeah, they just took like some of the most important scenes and just made it a different order. And then it was like, okay, that now makes sense because it does make sense that um, the Lannisters ring the bells and then Daenerys still attacks because for the whole mm-hmm. series we got a setup that she's actually k- kind of a nice person of course she wants to dominate the world but she was kind of a nice person yeah. so it doesn't make she's sense like that a she attacks that's the only point yeah <laughs> <laughs> I mean like, yeah so. I definitely was I wasn't the big I like it, her doing that for me wasn't like the biggest portrayal of the show it was more just like the general lack of I guess intellect from other characters like they start they everybody like had a brain dump and forgot how to be like as cunning and as clever as they were throughout the rest of the series it felt like and i think they could have justified yeah. it. like i'm sure in the book if the same thing happens with with Daenerys going mad king on you know uh the, the red what, sorry <laughs> king's landing <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah i'm trying to remember the yeah. names of every place 
yeah, I'm yeah. sure in the books it, it would make a lot more sense, you know, by the time they get there. But in the show, it was sort of like, oh, and now she's crazy, you know. And the, and yeah, the show yeah, doesn't exactly. have the benefit of the internal monologue. My big, my big thing. I've told this to Danny before. Is I felt like they handled this the situations in the wrong order. You don't you don't tackle the existential threat to the entire world and then go and t take care of the political squabbles. I think they should have had to have, you know, done the King's Landing. Like we have to get the kingdom as one to fight off the 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 White Walkers. You know, and then they should have gone up, and the final scenes and the final battle should have all been at Winterfell. Yeah, yeah, I think for sure. And they should skip the romantic story of Jamie Lannister and uh, I don't remember her name. Uh, you know who I mean? Cersei. It's like oh, 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 um, Brienne of Tarth. Yeah, Brienne of Tarth. Yeah, it's like mm -hmm. Brienne of Tarth is not a was falling in love for someone like she's such a cool character she shouldn't be like yeah. oh i'm so sad jamie lannister because you want to go to your sister now it's like oh, come on mm -hmm. yeah this is ridiculous yeah. i felt like yeah. the pacing of the whole show it just felt really really phoned in because they had spent so much time letting scenes breathe and storylines breathe through so many seasons and then we get to the final and it's just like they cram everything they mm -hmm. don't really let the exposition breathe we don't feel like we're living through it it just feels like we're checking off a list of things we need to to wrap it up so we can get to our star wars movie yeah. you know deal that we've got for me i always wish that cersei would have escaped and got mm -hmm. to uh, the other side. And then, you know, like in a sort of an epilogue, we see her, you know, encountering Arya over there. And then, mm -hmm. you know, that's, because I felt like Arya needed to kill Cersei in that show. Mm -hmm. Like, I felt like I really wanted mm -hmm. that payoff and then we never got it. And it yeah. was a little disappointing, so. Yeah. Probably, and, we and probably wanted to see that more than her character. putting the Night King. Mm. 100%. Wow, but that was cool, though. That was cool. <laughs> that with this and then <laughs> dropping the knife and just stabbing yeah. her. The, the, so that cool. Was really cool. <laughs> it was cool. But I, didn't, I didn't feel necessarily <laughs> satisfied by it, but it was it was a cool moment. But yeah, I do agree with Danny. I think, you know, our, uh, Cersei, you know, finally coming face to face. Like, they didn't even have a real confronta confrontation after all that time. Like, Arya and Cersei's face to face is something that you know, we would have wanted to see, like just them exchanging words even if even if it didn't end in one of their deaths. Yeah, um, yeah. And Cersei is such a strong character. She should uh, she shouldn't have died mm -hmm. like in the arms of her brother. Uh, it's no. she deserved differently. Yeah. I mean even if yeah, even yeah. if it was just her like screaming in the throne room as fire like as the dragon fire comes into her, you know, comes in and engulfs her, I think that would have been a much more cinematic death for her. Mm -hmm. I wanted to see her like you know. living in poverty and on you know <laughs> I forget what the other side just like you know like completely being humbled and then when you think that like she's received a fate you know and like has just been humbled so much that's when you know Arya shows up with a different face kind of thing like it just felt mm -hmm. like it would have been more poetic but you know they had a they yeah. had they had a, a career to get to I guess they couldn't <laughs> uh, finish Game of Thrones strong they had only the whole world paying attention to what they were doing so mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah and, I, and that's what we call fumbling the bag because i think that the careers of those two showrunners has kind of petered out since then you know it's like nobody's for, nobody's going to forgive them for ending game of thrones poorly mm. excellent still a well, great job though. i think that overall yeah, yeah. <laughs> high marks overall <laughs> yeah just didn't stick the landing yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm.
Oh, the it's okay. The flight part. was okay. What does it matter if it crashed in the end? You know? <laughs> <laughs> crashed on the runway. Yep. That's not, not going to be good for the pilots. Anyways. Ever dreamed of embarking on legendary quest, unlocking hidden secrets, and discovering untold riches? Dive into the world of X Seekers of Fortune. It's the game that's soon to be taking the internet by storm. Sign up today at xseekersoffortune.com and start your journey to greatness. Remember, fortune favors the bold. See you there. Well, I, like we said, that could be an entire episode of our show, and maybe it should be an entire episode of our show in the future. But right now, we should probably get moving on to the main topic today, and that's your story. So we wanted to start with, we always like to start with the origin story. So what mm -hmm. would you say is your gaming origin story? Did you grow up in a gaming household or did you discover it like once you started going to school and interacting with friends? Yeah, so I didn't really grow up with a lot of board games around me. Uh, like my parents did by here and there, the Spiel des Jahres, you know, the, the, the one game that uh, the, the, the Germans uh, <laughs> award kind of. And um, so um, my husband as well, he, he wasn't a typical, like every year Spiel des Jahres, family sits together and then uh, they play. Like my husband and I are the ones that run Wonderboard. That's why I, I mention him. And um, oh, yes. actually, um, my uh, um, music high school teacher is the one uh, designer um, that invented Carcassonne. Uh, so oh, really? somehow I wait, already wait, had a really, <laughs> yeah. Um, your high school music teacher invented Carcassonne? Mm -hmm, yes. Okay. Oh, Klaus wow. Jürgen Brede so. was my music teacher when I was uh, in high school. Yeah. Okay, that's a pretty that's solid connection right there. There's like there's like a gaming genealogy going through that right there. That's awesome. Uh, through uh, through the school, yeah. Actually, he was my teacher when he had hadn't done Carcassonne yet. So uh, and I only had him in f fifth and sixth grade, and then I never heard back from him until my brother graduated, and uh, he came back and was invited to to have a speech at the graduation and then there he was already a famous game designer and we were like oh that's fun that's the one <laughs> that made Carcassonne um, yeah but um, I actually started uh, gaming more uh, when my husband brought me into the hobby kind of so oh um, well that's couple that games together stays together we we love hearing that yeah um, exactly and at the beginning Sorry, at the beginning he was like, uh, yeah, so I have a lot of board games uh, on my shelf. Uh, we should play. And I was like, okay, let's play. And then um, I liked it. We had game groups. We played together. And now I'm the one saying like, okay, let's buy more board games because we don't have enough yet. And he's like, no, let's <laughs> don't buy more board games. So it has totally switched now. <laughs> well, you're in that oh, fortunate space and uh, you've elevated to that fortunate space where I don't think you have to buy a board game. You'll be pretty satiated if you never buy a board game again, I'm sure. Like your people are probably begging for you to take their games. Um, now, I did want to pause and go back a moment because you mentioned this German game and, you know, we're Americans and we're Texans to be spe uh, specific. <laughs> this, I have not heard of this German game and maybe it's uh, a translation issue. Maybe I have heard of this game, but can you tell us more about this game that every German family plays once a year? Oh, the Spiel des Jahres, I mean, well, that's not a, a, a game itself. It's the the yearly award that that's like the, the most famous board game award uh, that oh, Germany okay. gives out. 
as yeah, a like Spiel des Jahres Award. So every year is a different game. And uh, like in my husband's uh, family, every year they bought that game that was awarded because that's what Germans do. They buy this game and play it together. And my parents did here and then, but not every year for sure. He did. Uh, they did buy mm. the Carcassonne, of course. And uh, I visit. I remember visiting them on Christmas, and they brought it out, and they were like, "Look, that's from your teacher." And I was like, "Really? <laughs> that's weird." Uh, yeah, that's how exactly how I would have responded as a teenager. Or whatever. <laughs> I would have been like, "Oh, that's weird." Yeah, yeah, yeah very. Weird. <laughs> I'm yeah, not it's impressed. always weird that's when you're weird. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's weird when your teachers have a life outside of school. Like the idea of like seeing your teacher at the grocery store is just like, no, no, that can't be. <laughs> yeah, I thought they, they should be locked up school. in a closet somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, so I've probably heard about that award, but I've probably only seen it in writing, and probably was like, uh, I'll learn how to pronounce that later. But so it's like kind of the Oscars for board games, and the you know just like with the Oscars, the movie that wins Best Picture gets a second life and goes on to have like another box office run. And so when a board yeah. game wins the award, everybody kind of just you know you know decides that that's the good game to buy this year. Yeah, yeah, and you immediately make like a huge sprint run because it will be uh, sold everywhere. Oh, that's okay. crazy. Good to know what we're aiming awesome. for. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, so we did want to know. Uh, you know, you you started playing advanced games with your husband, uh, and that's where you know essentially the origin story of your company is playing games with your husband. What was, when he tried to get you into games, what was the first one that he pulled off the shelf that he was like, this one's going to lock you in? Or which one was the first one that really got you? Got you? Um, I don't remember which one was the first, but I remember playing Zombieside and really liking it. Like from oh, the Simon okay. games, just a cooperative game, very friendly. I, I, it was a good entry game for me because I could get into the story of having like, a lot of zombies and the miniatures <laughs> and just like things happening on the board. Now I'm at the point where I actually don't really like cooperative games. Like I'm very competitive. <laughs> so that mm. switched as well. But it was a good entry. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah, we're, we're so, big on, well, we're actually right now developing our game to be both. We, we've developed the competitive side, but we do know that there's a lot of people who don't like competitive games. They like cooperative games. So now we're also developing uh, X Seekers of Fortune to have a cooperative mode because of that sort of thing. Like, you know, a lot of people don't like, don't really pick up the competitive side of things until they get into the game mm -hmm. as a cooperative game. So Wonderbo, uh, how did, how did, how did you guys go from we're, 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 we're dating, playing games to we're married and we are making games. Yeah, so actually uh, we're dating and uh, got married and founded a company a couple mm -hmm. of years ago. So we've been working together for like eight years or something. Uh, already we worked nice. before together in the agency, but we have our own company like since uh, around about eight years. And we, we do marketing and video production, film pro and photo production and stuff to earn our money. But we always set the goal to spend the money that we earn in creative projects. So we started making documentaries and we published a book um, and things like that. So um, at some point, my husband also designed a card game. And we had the idea to publish this game as one of our many other projects that we were doing. So 
the one year we made a documentary, the other one made a book, and then uh, 2022 in the beginning we said like, oh, let's do the card game now because we have we we have this project in in the in, in on the table like for so long we should just get it out, and um, we actually started doing it and uh, started getting into kind of the industry, as you will say. So I started getting in touch with other uh, publishers in Germany and asking questions just to learn, like, how are we going to like connect? How we can we uh, get this to stores? It wasn't our first Kickstarter then because we had already done Kickstarters or crowdfunding campaigns for the documentaries. But um, mm -hmm. we actually liked the people so much that we <laughs> got in touch with that we said, maybe we should just try to do this as our like exit plan from advertising. So <laughs> at some point we want to uh, work only for board games and not be um, not have to work have to work for uh, for our advertising clients. It really anymore. feels like the game industry sucks you in. Like I we felt that way. I think I think we did mm -hmm. not expect to be pulled into the industry as quickly as we were. Everyone is at least in our experience very friendly and generous with their time. Yeah. And uh, mm -hmm. you make friends quick, and it's yeah. it's been a ride for sure. Yeah, um, and those are those are people that share your interest. They share your kind of business ideas or passions, but you can also hang out with them and play games. So yeah, that's <laughs> a nice benefit, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's really hard to hang out with people who are making movies and make a movie just on the spur. You know, I guess you could watch movies <laughs> yeah. together, but it's not quite the same uh, practice. No. Unless you're watching the movie to criticize it and say how you would, you know, you would do it differently. Uh, that's awesome that y'all have so many, you're wearing so many different hats and like creativity seems to be the core thing that brings it all together. Uh, you said you created, uh, you made a uh, documentary. What, what was the subject matter and what was your role on the documentary? Well, the we have questions about that later, Joel, that we Oh, we do down cover. the... <laughs> Yeah, oh, down yeah. The line. elsewhere, okay. alone in Africa, and mm -hmm. uh, the fastest, uh, the world's fastest. Mm -hmm. okay. We, we can well, we'll cover get that. Later. I have a whole section for filmmaking later that we can uh -oh. touch on. Okay. Well, in that case, <laughs> we'll just switch it up. Then um, I guess what you know, you made you made mention like your goal in becoming a game publisher was to get out of advertising. Have you succeeded? Like, has this success of Kelp? gotten you to the place where you now are just a game publisher or just you know not doing the advertising you know work you know creativity for money um not yet uh it has definitely accelerated it <laughs> but uh <laughs> we we are still working for other clients also just because we have long lasting relationships with them and we have helped them like also make uh, longer projects for their company so we are not going to be like okay bye <laughs> we're gone now <laughs> also um, we are reducing it for sure just because uh, the day only has 24 hours and we still have to like finish kelp and we have taken mm -hmm. out uh, on new projects but um, yeah we hope at some point we will hopefully make this switch but actually the few clients that we have now are also very nice so we also like working for them <laughs> <laughs> Where where did the nice. name Wonderbow come from? Oh, we just came up with it. Uh, it's like <laughs> sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like a, a Wonderbow where we want to send people through it so they enjoy the board game life. Kind of. I love it. Like, <laughs> is this a bow like you know pull and shoot the arrow, or is this a different kind of bow that I'm not thinking? No, it's like a rainbow. Oh, oh like a rainbow. Okay, yeah, the logo. So like, like an mm -hmm. arc. 
Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Mm -hmm. what, do you, what do you think has been most challenging or unexpected about getting into board game publishing? Hmm. That's a good question. Because I don't, I mean, I think the most challenging part is figuring out how to sell the games because sales is the most difficult part. I don't think uh, for me or for us, it wasn't that difficult entering because everyone was so welcoming uh, already. So we had another startup on a, a few for a few years that we are closing down now where we um, um, brought an alcohol-free craft beer to market. That was a very, very different thing because the industry wasn't that welcoming and it was very, very difficult to to sell drinks in glass bottles. So a very different product to handle. Um, but in board games, I don't, I, I didn't feel that it was that difficult. I think the most difficult thing is to find a really good game that you can just make really, really well, develop really well and present it to the people that they actually like it and buy it. So that's the, the most challenging thing, but the, the industry itself has been so open. So it wasn't difficult to enter, kind of. Did, did you feel like with Kelp, the, the majority of the people who were buying it were from the hobby, or did you find people outside the hobby who were interested in the subject matter? I think we found people from outside because uh, we had like from the 21,000 backers that we had more than 4,000 hadn't used Kickstarter before. Mm, so wow. this actually oh. shows that they aren't really in the Kickstarter world and you have to kind of yeah. really be into board games if you do Kickstarters because you don't just go to, to the shop and buy it. Um, mm -hmm. So it was a learning for sure that we had to do a lot of education with uh, with uh, those people because they were like, oh, I like the game. And then after the campaign, they sent us uh, messages like, are we getting it for Christmas? <laughs> I was like, oh, no, <laughs> wait. No, no, no. <laughs> no, 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 you have to no, no. wait for a long time now. Patience, so, patience. Yeah, yeah. That, that reminds but, me uh, of uh, what we heard about mm -hmm. Botany with uh, Dustin Droz, uh, you know, it's just like, mm -hmm. you know, like pulling in people, having a subject matter so exciting that pulls in people who aren't normal mm -hmm. gamers. I mean, that's like, you know, definitely in the expanding, in this expanding hobby, you know, we have to expect that any one game could be somebody's first real game. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a beautiful thing to, uh, to be honest, like uh, talking, like explaining the, kick the crowdfunding process uh, was, uh, in the beginning was like, oh, wow, okay, that we have to do too, because I, I, we weren't that prepared for it, because we were w going to a lot of board game conventions and just gathering our crowd from kind of the board game space already. But um, it's really nice to, to get in touch with kind of people that are discovering the game uh, or, or board games for the first time. And when we told them, no, listen, you have to, you are now helping us manufacture the game and then it will be shipped and it will take a little bit of time. We will charge you for shipping again later. So don't be scared when we ask you for money again. It's normal and stuff like mm -hmm. that. And, uh, and and their reaction was like, oh, okay, cool. Now I understand. All good. Fine. So uh, <laughs> that was really nice. Yeah. And and so Kelp obviously is, is, is the big game right now. How did you first learn about Kelp? What was your first you know moment where Kelp entered your life? What was that like? So uh, we were standing in Essen uh, two years ago, yeah, 2022, mm -hmm. um, and uh, the designer came up to us and he had researched us because we did a Kickstarter on that year for the card game Hunters of the Lost Creatures. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
he later he told us that he had researched us because he liked how we did the Kickstarter because we put a lot of like uh, love into little details of the campaign and we had the community very involved and stuff like that and I remember just being there like selling the game and then Sönke who's my husband he, ca he came up to me and he was like hey there was a guy just there he pitched a game to us it's really good shark versus octopus I'll tell you later but I really <laughs> think it's something and I was like okay okay and then I kept selling that. <laughs> so, and then mm -hmm. after on that same day Sönke uh, came up to me uh, over and over again saying like yeah i just thought about it you know that that's two player and estimating and he kept just telling me about the pitch because after that i learned that zunke was also very busy when carl came up to to us but he was so triggered by the pitch that he just left everything just as is and just listened <laughs> to carl and to the pitch so i was like okay uh, he was so fascinated by it then i thought okay that is very very cool and i remember driving home that night and we were in the car discussing it. Can we do that? It's, it's so much bigger than the car game we are just doing. But if we do it well, this could be something really good for us. It's such a unique game. And we were just so excited. And I spent like four hours researching shark and octopus videos on YouTube on that night. Uh, <laughs> although I had to get up early on the next day to go to the convention again and stand there and sell games, you know, but um, I was so fascinated, like my mind just started running like, okay, shark, octopus, what's the story we're gonna tell? How can we uh, make the landing page? How can we tell people about it? What's the images we can do? So everything, like the, the head just started spinning like right away. So that was our oh. first, first day with kelp. <laughs> I, I, that's I'm what guess, we live for in this hobby, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So I was just I'm going to say, I feel like that's what. Yeah. We, sorry, Danny. I, I think I'm going to go ahead and just go. I think that's what we live for: that head spinning, that excitement. Every all I, all the ideas, like the opening of a new world to you, and just like being able to go in and discover it. Um, when kelp was presented to you at that, it was it was called Shark versus Octopus, or at least that was like the the placeholder name. I mean, how no, far along, kelp. how fully formed was? Was it at that time versus what you, what it became, and how involved were you in that process in like you know fine tuning the uh, the game itself? So it was called Kelp, and we actually thought for a short period of time if we should change the name, but we researched that Kelp, like the actual plants that are called Kelp, are called Kelp in many many languages, which is oh, wow. crazy. Because in German, you can use the scientific word then for kelp and in other languages as well. So we thought like, oh, that's great. One word is very unique. You mm -hmm. can remember it and it works for so many languages. So we'll keep it. And we as the publishers added shark versus octopus to it because we felt that shark versus octopus as the subtitle immediately explains what the game is about. Two players, different roles and confrontation. That's mm -hmm. kind of what you get. So that's what we uh, what we added. And um, nice. the game was uh, was uh, very well designed and very well developed already. So we didn't change a lot. We did streamline a few things and we did change a, a few little things, but we didn't change a lot because we didn't feel that we needed to. Like we, we don't believe that, oh, we are now publishers and now we have to change stuff just for the sake of it. So we, uh, we, uh, um, we improved a few things, but we didn't change a lot. We just started working, of course, on art and everything. If, if, if someone was bringing a game to you, do you have like a, a methodology now for how you would engage with them and start development process? Like, is it fully formed in your mind or is it like very improvisational based on like every situation is different? Like what's your... 
Yeah, every situation is different for sure. I think the most important thing is like I rely on Zünke's judgment. If he's like triggered by the pitch, then then I go I go with him, you know, <laughs> like I totally <laughs> support that because um, like between us, like I'm more on the organizational side and on the like community management side and organizing and manufacturing and everything. He is more the creative part and, and he he can much, much better than I can just uh, take a rough idea and just really look at it abstractly uh, i don't know if you if, if you understand what i mean like he can mm -hmm. he can just like build on it in his head already and understand the potential of it so uh, um i think we just go on a on a on a case by case if we like the pitch we like the idea it doesn't it doesn't matter at what stage the game is i mean it should if someone presents a game to us, it should have been placed, played us at a couple of times so that we know it's it works, kind of. Yeah, yeah <laughs> um, exactly. That's like, that's the, that's the minimum. Uh, but in, uh, everything else, we just take it from there. Are, okay. are you surprised how much kelp has resonated inside the hobby? I mean, it's been, it's made a lot of uh, waves. Waves. Like. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't yeah. help myself there. Uh, <laughs> we need a soundboard for yeah. that one. But I <laughs> I've used that in a lot of posts in our Facebook group and Discord. It's like, hey, let's make some waves together because it fits. <laughs> oh yeah, it's all good. Oh yeah, we're, we're you know we're getting to the bottom of like all the puns that we can make using our card names and the adventure theme for uh for you know X Seekers of Fortune. So we we definitely understand like you got it. Once you find a good one, that one that people like kind of chuckle at, you gotta just write it. Yeah, just like a wave. Yeah. The most commented <laughs> sentence uh, when we were running ads was, Kelp, I need somebody. Kelp, <laughs> not just anybody. Kelp, <laughs> really, like hundreds of people commented that on the ads. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I love it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that came from the community? That wasn't like Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. When we were running ads, they commented on the Facebook ads and uh, they put the Beatles uh, lyrics in it. The it's Kelp funny lyrics. how everyone's brain goes to the same places. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember mm -hmm. I used to work in a grocery store and I was one of those people who would make the sample dishes and people would come by and try it. Mm -hmm. If I was making halibut, like every other guy would be like, I'll have some halibut for the hell of it. And you're like, okay, how do you all <laughs> yeah. have the same brain? <laughs> yeah. For, from the same, you know, the same species, from the same society, what went to the general, the same general schools. I mean, uh, especially comedians always talk about how like they'll post a joke and then the follow, like hundreds of people will post like the same follow up or the same like observation on the joke, you know? So mm -hmm. it's just, yeah. it's, it's uh, what is it? It's, it's meme mimic, like, you know, truly a meme of our, our brains. Um, Sorry, do we uh, do we get to the bottom of that one though? The how did Kelp no. resonate? Oh, was, did you have more to say on that? So we kind of got sidetracked yeah, yeah, by yeah. that Beatle lyric, <laughs> for sure. Um, yeah, so uh, no, we didn't expect it at all to become what it has become, for sure. Like we we did put a lot of work into the campaign and to promoting the game, and we knew that people would like it because on every playtest we had, people liked it. So. 
We, we maybe had one person out of the 200 people we met throughout the conventions that was like, oh, it's okay. But <laughs> everyone else yeah. was like, really like, oh, that's so cool and so fresh. And we were like, okay, I'm getting pumped again. You know, like, it's really, really good. Although mm -hmm. I've explained it today 20 times, I'm still hyped about it because everyone is liking it. So um, that was, that could have, could have told us a little bit but I mean you don't sit there and be like oh yeah like the whole it's gonna go kind of viral or however you call it no for sure not um, it did take us the the Kickstarter campaign definitely took us but by, by surprise was it always the plan to kickstart kelp yeah 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 it was because I think for Carl the designer uh, he had that in mind already he came to us like hey you did a good Kickstarter and I think this is a good Kickstarter game because you, we can have the shark miniature and we can do something with it and stuff and and for us we uh, being an, a new publisher uh, having no distribution channels at all we can't risk to just produce 2,000 games or thousand games and just try to go to retail it's such a wasted money in the end because for us I prefer to make a good promotion plan kind of and mm -hmm. if it's a game that fits Kickstarter I don't think every game should go to Kickstarter but for this one it, we've thought that it could be successful and I prefer to make a plan for promotion and put a budget on it and we did spend a lot of money beforehand but we knew that that's the po it has potential so it can go somewhere and we we wouldn't have had the same outcome if we would have gone directly to retail. We wouldn't have printed 20,000 copies at once. Never, yeah. ever, ever. So, yeah. Wow. Uh, you said something there that really uh, caught me. So you said not every game should go to Kickstarter. So in mm -hmm. your mind, what makes for a good game going to Kickstarter? What kind of games should and what kind of games maybe should not? I think, um, I think you have to be realistic. There are like tons of games out there and doing a Kickstarter that can be successful is a lot of work. And if you really want to take that route and invest that much time and money, you have to be sure that you have something unique on your hands. And if you can also do some deluxe stuff and give people more components, then better. <laughs> but <laughs> even if you don't have deluxe and you don't have stretch goals and stuff like that, the game still should have a good storytelling and be unique because otherwise you're not going to be able to compete out there. Like there are yeah. so many games out there. You need a strong mm -hmm. voice for sure for the game. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, so this was your third, no, fourth Kickstarter, correct? It was our, yeah, fourth crowdfunding. We did also a crowdfunding campaign on a different platform mm -hmm. in Germany, but it was the fourth. Yes. Oh, okay. I see. Well, uh, crowdfunding, like we, especially Danny and I, we use those terms probably interchangeably, uh, maybe to the detriment <laughs> of uh, the other crowdfunding uh, campaign, you know, our managers. But, um, mm -hmm. and I know you'd crowdfunded another game before, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. The card game Hunters oh. of the Lost Creatures that was the first uh, game Kickstarter. That that feels like it's Excellent. like a spiritual twin to X Seekers of Fortune somehow. Because uh, originally X Seekers of Fortune was called Lost Arts and it was very much mm -hmm. about hunting for lost things. So <laughs> I'm very interested mm -hmm. in this game now. So I'd have to... Yeah. Is it, is it in the English language market? Yeah. And we, are, we actually already went to retail in the US, but we had really a unfortunate situation because when we were delivering the games to the US, uh, our distributor Funnigan closed and then we were like, oh, we don't even know where 
to storage the games now and it took mm -hmm. us a lot of time to find another company to take <coughs> on the game and we lost momentum um, and then we just waited did kelp and now we have us uh, retail support and we will relaunch it on retail in march then yeah oh that's so oh cool. excellent okay yeah i was thinking you were going to say like we you know it's like we got everything funded and we s printed everything and we sent it out in march 2020 you know the uh, classic uh you know covid oh story. no no uh, that that's no, going to no. be like that yeah. uh, i have a feeling in a few years that's going to be a trope of movies it's like somebody's going to be like i just got that new mm -hmm. job and my life is looking good and then the subtitle you know the date will come up and it'll be like march 20 you know march 20th you know yeah. 2020 <laughs> <laughs> it'll just be a punchline uh for years yeah, to come yeah. Um, no, that's the, uh, so you had run, so this is, like I said, it's your fourth crowdfunding, your second game on crowdfunding. Was there anything unique about kelp, kelp's, you know, um, campaign that you, uh, didn't account for, or that surprised you along the way? I mean, besides mm. making a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, the, uh, the, the only thing that took us by surprise was actually the one thing I, I recorded a podcast two days before we launched where mm -hmm. I was asked, how do you prepare for stretch goals? And then I said, well, you have to have them kind of planned out and we don't know the exact um, increments yet uh, for, for the stretch goals, but we have to see how it goes because you don't want to be there on day two and don't have any stretch goals anymore. That's what I said on the podcast. And then two days later, we, three days later, we were on day two and we didn't have stretch goals anymore <laughs> because <laughs> everything went so fast on the first day. And it, we were sitting there like, okay, this is what we planned for 30 days. And uh, now on day one, we have like 130,000 euros already. And we ex we estimated to get around 200,000. That's where at some point we're like, okay, but we can't wait with the stretch goals because we can't be like, oh yeah, we're gonna give you two new cards for 50,000 euros. That's like, that's stupid. So we mm -hmm. just stuck by the plan of increasing it and offering them. And then day two, it was like, okay guys, you have to wait now because <laughs> we have to figure out new stretch goals <laughs> for the <laughs> remaining yeah. 27 days kind of. And that's the only thing uh, that really was difficult. Yeah. I but think like it's good shortly after I got on, yeah, uh, shortly after I got onto Launch Boom, I think I got onto Launch Boom either the day before or the day of Kelp's like monumental success. And I do remember, I think you posted uh, a thread. Well, maybe you did. I may, or maybe I heard through the grapevine that you were, that was like the kind of like big, like, oh no, like the stretch goals are, were not enough. <laughs> it can't, yeah, yeah, yeah. your and campaign was like un, unaware that you would be hitting those highs and you just did not have a roadmap you know uh that for, for those levels uh, at that frequency so that that is a good thing to know yeah. it's like maybe you do have to at the very least imagine getting to the moon and if you don't quite get there that's fine but you have to like have a like an ever-expanding ceiling just in case you blow up yeah kind of maybe i don't know because <laughs> i mean you yeah. can't really prepare for that i think stretch goals in the end uh, they are they should never be unlimited because for a creator you can mm -hmm. not just be going out and just giving stuff for free all the time because at some point your box mm -hmm. will get too heavy and your production costs will get too high mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter if you have 500 people more or less on the on the project it won't change anything and what i also learned um, is that production costs uh, can really go down when you go up to 5000 units 6,000 units, everything above 
it's minimal. It's, it mm -hmm. doesn't make that mm -hmm. much of a difference if you have like 10,000 or 15,000 games, depending on the component. But we have a lot of components that actually don't change at all if we do 1,000 or 20,000 uh, oh, wow. because they are so customized. Um, so I think you can prepare for that. Or what we notice also is we, we told everyone we need some time. We have heard all of your wishes. We're going to evaluate everything that we can do. And please wait. And people waited for a week. We didn't post any new stretch goals. And it was okay. You know? Yeah. So mm -hmm. people kept backing. It's also, yeah, it, didn't, it didn't change. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You can't give everybody what, what they want all the time. What do you think makes for a good stretch goal? Like if you're going into the, the next campaign, like how, do you, how would you approach thinking about stretch goals? If someone's playing their campaign, you know, what are the considerations? What do you think makes for a good stretch goal? So I think you, you should either decide, are you going the stretch goal? Are you taking that route or not? Like, are you all in on stretch goals and you want to make a game or, or a version of the game really deluxified, unique, special, no one else would get that stuff ever again? Or you're just like, we're not doing any stretch goals. This is, we believe in it. This is what we offer and that's it. I think both options are really good. I think the one with stretch goals just makes for a more interactive campaign because at some point people don't comment anymore, don't have anything to say, are not maybe not that excited because they are just like, okay, now I have the game, bye. I don't have to engage anymore and you want engagement. So I think we would probably do that again. And I think for us, what, what has really worked is we have a really, really good looking, really nice retail edition that we have also sold also a lot because not everyone wants to have the fancy stuff, which is fine. But then you take the deluxe edition and then just start having fun with it and just put like more deluxified items. I don't think, I don't, I don't like or we don't like it when stretch goals are related to gameplay because everyone should get the same gameplay. But yeah, I agree with that. I think not everyone wants to have special dice or metal coins or whatever mm -hmm. else we offered. So yeah, that's a yeah. that's a really great it, point. I think something we've almost intuited, which is like the stretch goal should probably be centered around the deluxe edition, the people who want extra, and that the, the there should just be the regular edition for people who are just like just give me the game. I don't need all the fancy yeah. stuff. Just give me the game. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. What, what do you think is people's most common misconception about kickstarting? Either from oh. the, yeah. Maybe that people now think we're millionaires. <laughs> That's a huge <laughs> misconception. Wait, um, I, I'm sorry, this is a millionaire's podcast. You're not a millionaire? I don't know. We might have <laughs> no. this episode. Oh, no. Yeah. Ask for a tax return. Uh, um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's different. We got uh, like day one, the, the comment section on day one was that that was the wild, wild west out there. Like uh, people's expectations sometimes are crazy, mm -hmm. <laughs> to say the least. Like, I don't know there. But also at the same time, having 20,000 backers and the same 50 people commenting throughout 28 days also shows you that's a very loud minority that's always asking for something. And mm -hmm. then you also have the other 50 people that are engaged because they have fun and they are like wishing you well and just just commenting nice stuff and talking between each other. So you have the both both people. Um, I, don't, I don't know what the what the biggest misconception is of Kickstarters. I think. 
it's a very interesting space and I think that people now like the basic idea of crowdfunding where you tell the people I have an idea can you please help me do it that doesn't exist anymore because uh, you can only succeed on crowdfunding if you already have a kind of finished product and show mm -hmm. everything and I understand why it has come to this uh, because you have as a consumer you have so many options out there like why would you mm -hmm. risk 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 your money for a project where you don't even know what the outcome is gonna be so um, yeah 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 that's a, that's a that's a difficult situation <laughs> How did you uh, manage to stay sane during the Kickstarter? Because I can only imagine that the stress is very high. Very yeah, high. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it is. I, I, I didn't just... eat for three days. You didn't eat? Oh, and wow. No, I, I couldn't eat for three days. I had just like, uh, Zynke kept bringing me like bread with chocolate on it, something sweet uh, <laughs> so that I could just eat. I, 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 I was really, really stressed the, uh, the first days because somehow we were just looking at each other being like what is happening here it's like the <laughs> two of us and so many people liking it that that's incredible but what's happening <laughs> you know and mm. all the comments and all the messages i woke up to 150 emails every day at the beginning and oh no oh my goodness <laughs> that you just that was a horror film just like you know flashing before my eyes <laughs> the idea of me waking up and having that many yeah. emails in my inbox is just like horrific um but I'm also imagining you just sitting there with that that uh, chocolate bread and just you know like a cat just you know he puts it down and you just slowly push it off of the the desk in front yeah. of you. <laughs> yeah, I'll try later. Yeah, and after a few days mm -hmm. it was fine. But it's because we got used to it. Okay, uh, it is like Alex Radcliffe, the YouTuber, sent me a message. He was like, um, "This could be a life-changing situation for you now," and I'm like, "Oh yeah." yeah. That's true. Yeah. This could change something in our lives now. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, I mm -hmm. hope it's for the best. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. <laughs> There's a lot of lot of maniacs now aware of you, so that's that's always. Uh... So I guess this, you know, while we're on the topic of Kickstarter, I guess we should talk a little bit about the challenges you've you've run into post Kickstarter mm -hmm. with the counterfeit copies of Kelp. Um, mm -hmm. I guess my question for you is, you know you know, what is the state of the situation now and what have been your biggest learnings from this experience that you, you know, would share with, with people as they're preparing to kickstart? So the biggest, the biggest surprise for me first was to learn how horrible the counterfeit situation is in general mm -hmm. for all kinds of products. Because uh, mm, yeah. the the worst thing for us was to deal with Amazon and eBay and all the other platforms. Um, they are not the easiest companies to get in touch with. Um, we n noticed that there were um, listings with Kelp on Amazon two days before the campaign ended. Because okay. I was just Googling like, oh, is there maybe a new content or a new video about kelp? And I, I just Googled kelp shark versus octopus and it popped up on the shopping results. And I was like, what's that? Mm. Oh uh, my that's gosh. not us, but that's our, all our images. And um, I spent uh, kind of almost a month talking to robots on Amazon, mm. oh. uh, <laughs> trying to get the listings down. And we actually really believed that this company would just would be just trying to get cash out of people because the project was successful we had spent a lot of money on ads everyone knew about it and 
as yeah. we had so many backers that didn't use Kickstarter, they probably thought there are a lot of people out there that don't understand or don't realize that the game doesn't exist, so they will just go and buy it, uh, which is understandable that <laughs> there are people out there that think that. Yeah. And we also learned about, um, I think we are the first board game to be counterfeited before it exists, but it definitely is not really? the first product of Kickstarter, coming out of Kickstarter, mm -hmm. that has been copied before it exists. So it is a usual oh, wow. scam to take success successful crowdfunding projects and just copy them before while they're being manufactured in other industries. That's yeah. a common thing. At least the at and least the movie industry has the you know has to go through the process of making a movie from scratch and making a bad version of a good movie or the very least a popular movie. Like yeah, it seems like they can just take your schematics, whatever you send in to manufacturers, they can tr somehow get that through back dealings and just one for one copy it with worse materials. Is that essentially what was yeah. out there? Did you get a copy uh, of the pro of the of the um what is it the the uh, I'm sorry, I'm losing my words, but did you get a copy of the counterfeit? Yeah, thank you, Dan. Uh, we got we we got photos of it. We don't uh, ha we have never seen a physical one where we got tons of pictures sent by people that bought it, and um, okay. they didn't get files from from our manufacturer. We know that like a thousand percent are mm -hmm. sure that they didn't take okay. the files from the manufacturer because our manufacturer has different files than the ones that were used. Um, so that's mm. how we know you, they took the they files. Yeah, yeah they took the they files. They took the files from Tabletop Simulator because on Tabletop Simulator you can just go there into the uh, workshop mode, right-click, download all the files, um, yeah. which is uh, an extra kind of right-click. It's like maybe two clicks, but it is very, very easy to download everything that is on there. And I've actually reached out to Tabletop Simulator, and they are the only ones in the whole like universe of people that I've reached out to regarding this that have not come back to me. And I think it's extremely dangerous to have a platform like this where they don't educate people what's happening with their files because it's not about taking screenshots you could always say well they took a screenshot that's it you can actually download mm -hmm. the pdf that you have uploaded and uh, uh wow. what that's the definitely something uh, for us to consider yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, people told us, oh, you should have put a watermark on it. It's like, yeah, use a AI software and the watermark is gone in like two seconds. So that's mm -hmm. a watermark doesn't protect you for, from anything. Uh, what the, um, the scammers actually did, they took the files from Tabletop Simulator. They, they took only the illustrations. They blew them up because we had them in low resolution. And they wrote all the typography on the cards again. They used a different font. Mm -hmm. They just made yeah. the files again. They put a lot of typo mistakes in it. Um, so you know that's so a fake care. thing. They mm -hmm. uh, just went by the Kickstarter page, counted all the components and copied them. I don't even think the Kickstarter page because they would have sent a shark miniature somehow. They sent a fake Lego shark uh, with the counterfeit copies because we used Lego shark in our <laughs> prototypes. So they uh -huh. sent a fake Lego shark and uh, yeah, that's yeah. what they have been selling. Wow. Wow. That's that, unbelievable. I, I, you, this, but I will say this is, I mean, you know, if you still have a, a documentary making, you know, bugging your body <laughs> this would make for a very compelling like especially modern era like you know just the idea of like having to call and getting robots that you're talking to i mean whether it be a documentary or a feature film there is like a postmodern movie in the making here 
I do want to say. So, yeah. You know, maybe, <laughs> maybe Silver Lining yeah. could be like one of your next projects. Yeah, we did actually. So we didn't want to bother our backers because we want our communication to be positive and we didn't want everyone yeah. to be like on the first day like, oh, uh, please help us. Uh, there are bad people out there and we try to get it handled. So in the beginning, we I found 12 listings. I reported them. Three days later, I got the message, they got taken down. I thought, oh, that's it, uh, done, let's continue. But then we realized that it's actually a bot probably making those listings because they mm -hmm. um, just uploaded, like, we got 12 deleted, 25 more appeared, like instantly. Yeah. Uh, on, it's on the modern every, day Hydra. On every page. <laughs> yeah. And um, and we didn't get through to speak to people. I actually reported so many on Amazon and I could report them because I have our trademarks registered and everything. But as you know, trademark doesn't help you at all on any platform because no one respects it. Um, so like 50% of the reports I, ma I made were accepted. The other 50% were rejected because it's a computer evaluating them. And in the, in the confirmation email you get, um, this was evaluated by our softwares and an expert person. I'm like, I don't believe for a second that an expert <laughs> person actually look at this because then they would mm -hmm. read my message that I include on there every time and they would be like, oh yeah, you're right. Maybe we should take it down because it's illegal. But um, this doesn't happen. eBay, the same thing. We just got like 50% of the ones taken down. The other ones were just left up there because they didn't find any believable reason why it's illegal. The scammers actually spent money on Amazon and Google to run ads on their listings so they could actually sell the product. And when we were sitting there, January 3rd, I was playing Dominion with Sönke and his son. And I got an email like, hey, the game looks great, but the rule book is missing. Can you please send it? I was like, what, mm -hmm. <laughs> what is this? Oh, no. uh, so someone had reached out to us and they had received this. And we were like, you have bought an illegal copy please send us pictures and let's <laughs> yes. continue the conversation. But this is uh, yeah. not, not send, the real product you have. Well. Send location, please on way. Does, <laughs> does Amazon or eBay have, I mean, Amazon in particular, do they have any liability selling counterfeit product? I mean, their platform is facilitating th you yeah. know, theft, you know, are they liable in any way? As far as I know, they are not allowed to do that. They are not allowed to allow those listings to exist. So when we got word that product was actually being sent out, we sent the update to our backers. We posted, uh, we made a blog post about it and we asked everyone to share this and help us report this. So that was, that was, that was the most incredible backer interaction I've experienced in my life because we had an army of people in every country that we had just going to battle for us. That was I, that was so amazing. I wouldn't have expected everyone to really like be that active, but they got it like after 24 hours, like most of the listings were taken down and we got a lead to someone working at Amazon. So I finally spoke to a person <laughs> and uh, this mm. person helped us like I have a direct lead, I can send him listings that I find and then those can be taken down. Plus they have also installed some other methods of recognizing the fake help listings so that if the, some go up, they go down immediately. And they told me, when you actually want to sell kelp on Amazon, you have to tell us again, because otherwise we will also take down your listing. So yeah, wow. something we have to adjust that, wow. but yeah. yeah. Very, very it's difficult it's situation, but you can't imagine how many people reached out to us, like press 
coverage and Amazon, we had the European Commission reach out to us as well because it's oh, wow. a wild case. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's oh, still wow. out Mentioning there. The the I, I'm sure it is and you're going to be fighting it for a long time. And you have now you have bots fighting bots basically on a daily basis. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, well, you kind of got into the you did mention you know you are uh, in the european market primarily um and you have some experience trying to come across the you know come across the seas and sell in america and you're about to really have a lot of ex more experience with that what are some differences between the uh, european games market and the u.s games market as you perceive them as somebody from the european side of things looking at america I don't think I can really speak so much about it because we are so young uh, as a publisher, uh -huh. so we don't have that okay. much experience on the on the selling side, uh, on the consumer mm -hmm. side. There are probably differences. We we notice the games that we get pitched from European designers and American designers. They are they feel very different. Uh, that that we notice, but uh, what makes um, them different? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, Zünke is a better person to talk about that. But he he uh, he mentioned that to me. He was like, ah, some humor that it's there. It's fun, but I don't think it's gonna work in Germany. So uh, <laughs> oh. on, the, on the way people approach games, which I don't know. Um, okay. I, I, we are we are not experts on the on the game market here, so I can't really speak on big differences. And also, we are just trying to do our business how we think we should do it we are we don't even know how german publishers really do their sales business in germany so um i mm -hmm. can't really speak on that yeah and i know on your website you mentioned you do localization services is that something mm -hmm. you started doing and and what has yeah. that been like and how, what's your approach to localization um, yeah, we've started doing that. We have actually our first localized game arrive at the Hamburg port this week. So finally, uh, it's there. Um, yeah, we just uh, have been scouting games um, on the internet, on BTG lists, on Instagram, etc. And mm -hmm. we just reach, if we like the game and think they fit our portfolio, we just reach out to the publisher and ask if, if uh, the games are available for Germany or for German-speaking countries. Mm. And um, it has, uh, yeah, we have a really uh, cool lineup, I think. We have, I think, six games coming this year. So. That's exciting. Oh, do you, very. Uh, do mm -hmm. you distribute English-speaking games within Europe as well? Like, uh, do you have any games from English-speaking countries that you're handling European distribution for? Uh, not in English. So mm -hmm. we will handle the the German language and we so our our idea is to set up distribution in Germany and uh, in Austria and German speaking Switzerland and the US so we will have kelp in English in the US we have our first game also in English uh, in North America Canada is also included um, and we uh, we uh, have also taken a license from a, from another game from Italian publisher and are bringing it to the US as well with our connections. So we are also open to taking some games from other publishers into the US and Germany as well. But all the other countries, we're looking for partners, um, okay. all the other European countries. Yeah. Very cool, very cool. Are there any specific uh, keys to uh, successful localization? Um, you know, in your experience, you've got 600 underneath your belt. Have you, what have you learned about localization from uh, English to German? Um, I think the game has 
to be good and it helps if the game is popular of course <laughs> if, if it's popular in other markets as well so we are actually I think we are pretty lucky because we got Sea Dragons and Rebel Princess or oh, Rebel Princess I actually have here Rebel Princess oh, very cool. um, Ooh, we cool. got the um, the uh, license for that before Essen uh, last year and um, during the the fair in Essen a lot of publishers wanted to have those games and because they were like they were mentioned on some YouTubers uh, channels and they got kind of a little hype around it and we already had the license so it was pretty cool to, <laughs> to not have to fight for a game on that uh, stage kind of and then we had other German publishers come to us and be like oh you are Wonderbow I keep hearing like Wonderbow <laughs> has the license and like, oh yeah well it's us <laughs> so we didn't <laughs> know that the, that the games would uh, would uh, be kind of would get a little hype during Essen but it definitely helps if mm -hmm. we haven't done any marketing on them yet and we have already pre-orders on our web store so that is pretty cool wow. So. Oh, I love that. Oh, it is. I, mm -hmm. It seems like when you're the uh, localization team, you get to stand at the finish line and just, you know, like, like they say, you know, stand at the finish line and just uh, recruit the winners, essentially. Yeah, I mean, if they're winners, of course. I think it's a. I th what we notice is if you wanna if you wanna get like a popular game, you have to be there. Like you have to be like, yeah, I take it. I confirm it. <laughs> I don't, I'm not going to negotiate. That's me. Because so, uh, I, th I think the competition is really, is really big. But it's definitely not as much work to do a localization as it is to prepare a game like Kelp, where we work like for a year only on the Kickstarter campaign. So that's uh, definitely oh, wow. less work. Do you manage the translation yourself or do you have people that you outsource that to? What is that process like? Um, different. We did Rebel Princess ourselves and then had someone look over it and correct it. Sea Dragon's the same thing. With Cap, we're actually getting someone to do our German translation because we don't have enough time to do it ourselves. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, it's just depending on, on the time we have. Amazing. Okay. Um, uh, so let's see. I mean, the only other thing I was going to ask, or not the only other thing, but, you know, we can go on and on about localization in the European market, I'm sure. But uh, I guess in terms of like trends, you know, if you're like looking out and, you know, out ahead of the market, um, you know, going to these conventions, Essex and things like that, is there trends that you're seeing in Europe that maybe us Americans should be aware of before we, you know, like as we're making games, if we're planning on going worldwide and we want to be in Germany, we want to be in Europe. Are there things to be on the lookout for that are just around the corner? Um, I, c I can't really tell if there are trends in Europe that, that aren't in America. I think actually when a okay. game gets popular, it gets popular across the board kind of because the, actually the community that makes the game popular with the YouTube channels and stuff, it's pretty small compared to other industries. So um, mm. if you talk about like unique Kickstarter-like games or games that are a bit hyped. Uh, there are probably differences looking at the family market and smaller games. Uh, there may be differences, but I don't. I don't know. Okay. Uh, what What YouTube channels did you feel like had the biggest impact on elevating Kelp, or do you feel like it was mostly just being at the conventions and showing people that created that following going into the Kickstarter? Oh, I think I think it's a mix. It's mm -hmm. uh, we always say like because we had a lot of people reach out asking uh, what's the success of the Kickstarter campaign like can you teach us to do this? I said, yeah. No, <laughs> it's just a, it's a big puzzle and you need to have a lot of 
puzzle pieces that just work well together. And in our case, we have a great game that is unique, that looks beautiful, and uh, that uh, a lot of people got to see because we went to so many conventions. Um, and uh, we were lucky enough to have a lot of um, content creators want to talk about the games. Um, and ads worked as well. And so everything worked well together. That's awesome. Okay. How long did it take you to, to key in on, on a winning ad? Like how, how long did it take you before you're like, okay, this is the right way to position it. And was it just one way to position it? Or did you find three or four different ways to position it with different audiences that you felt was effective? So we actually only ran ads for two months before we launched. So we had to come to results pretty quickly. Um, mm -hmm. Kind of before yeah. we could starting scaling, so that we got actually some some results out of it. Um, the messaging was clear from the beginning: two-player asymmetric game, or the the two-player game of Shark versus Octopus was our main headline, I believe. Um, mm -hmm. Audience-wise, we did test a lot, and there we went outside the board game interested people. So we targeted people that like to go to aquariums or people that like to go fishing or um, things like that. Marine biologists was also a very good audience. Um, <laughs> I <bet>. So <laughs> I think that's how we actually managed to get out of the board game bubble kind of and, um, and reach people that haven't used Kickstarter before. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's very cool. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, yeah, the, the theme of the game actually being something like uh, there's so many people out there who at the very least at one point uh, dreamed of being like, what is the sorry, what is the term? I'm forgetting, you know, I people go to school to be, you know, to study the oceans. And marine it's biologist. just it's like one of those marine biologists. Thank you, Danny. And it's just one of those big yeah. um, dream jobs I think people have that they idolize. And even if they don't become a marine biologist, they still think of it as, you know, in the same way that we think of uh, archaeologists as like, you know, these heroes mm -hmm. uh, of land. Marine biologists are like here. It could be potentially heroes of the sea, you know, these noble scientists mm -hmm. going out and exploring. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah. and, you know, good for good for them. I am I don't I should say this. I am death, deathly afraid of the deep ocean. That is like one of my like big fears. I, I don't even like the part of the scene in Finding Nemo where they go into the darkness. <laughs> Um, it, it's just it's just very scary for me. Um, so uh, more power to people who want to go and plunge those depths. Mm -hmm. So kind of shifting gears here back to publishing and, and finding new games. Where do you find that you're getting most of your solicitations for new games? I think you mentioned Carl uh, stopped you on the floor. Was it at Essen or? Mm -hmm. where, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah where, at Essen. Is that typical? Are you having more and more people with the success of Kelp emailing you saying, I've got a game, what do you think? You know, what, is, what has it been like? Yeah, we have a few people email us. Um, and as we got so many emails, I started making um, game submissions form on the website so that we can collect the data because we get so many emails regarding all different topics that they just get lost after a while. And um, I did post that on the Game Designers Lab Facebook group, and we have almost 100 game submissions now oh, uh, wow. since then. That's a lot, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, I don't know. We are still working through them. Uh, but yeah, people just reach out now. And, and are they, at this point, 
are you just looking for games that you find interesting or is it like we know we want to make a game in this space or with this theme you know what is your approach now to figuring out what what are the next games that you're going to publish yeah so that's the same question and other publishers ask us when we try to get the localization as a games for to look to localize um, and we are small enough that we say we need to like the games ourselves because we spend so much time working on them and promoting them on conventions like if i have to teach a game 20 times a day i, st I still have to like it at the end of yeah. the day <laughs> so otherwise it's it's not a good game to have in your portfolio so uh, that's we know we're not going to do party games we're not going to do kids kids only games we're not going to do war games or games that are themed around real life wars those are the only mm -hmm. four things that we have set for for ourselves but other than that we just have to like it yeah that's very cool and um when you're evaluating a game is it just that you like it or there and, and that they don't fall into those four categories or are there other things that you're looking for that you have like a great game has this 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 and this and if we see it then we know that it's checked off all of our magic boxes and i don't even think i mean Zynka is, is a head scout for us but i don't think that just that we can say a good game has to have these things mm -hmm. mapped out but we need to be triggered by the pitch and it has to feel unique. Like we mm -hmm. don't need to have like the 10th game that is like a city building game or something like that. So uh, it can be a city building game with a twist. So I need to know what the twist is. <laughs> what is the twist? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so it has to be a bit unique because otherwise that's what we felt with Cat. We felt it was very fresh with the two asymmetric roles playing against each other. And if we don't see or don't feel that uniqueness kind of then um, it's just too much risk for us to invest in developing and doing like a whole year of promoting and kickstarter campaign and everything one of the things that i think a lot of people hear about in the industry is hey don't put a lot of time into your your flavor or your art because a lot of publishers will take it and then they'll strip it all away and reskin it for what they feel like they need to market in them uh, you know, whatever is going to work in the market currently. Is that something that Wonderbow has done or would do? Or how do you guys think about taking a game and then repackaging it in a way that you think will be better positioned in the market? So I think either the game should be presented really neutral with an idea. So we had, uh, when we were at Nuremberg, we went to the um, pitch event and we, I, I remember one particular guy who made a really nice board that was just very graphic and all the cards just had a placeholder that said picture, but the graphic design was done. So I understood how to work with the cards and how the symbols work, but mm -hmm. I didn't have any theme or art on it that just, that maybe I would have liked, maybe I wouldn't have liked it, but it didn't distract me. So I was really, when he was pitching, I was really focused on how do I play this game. So I think this works really well. On the other hand, Kelp, the way how the game works is so, um, so tight to the theme uh, that it, it wouldn't have worked if we wouldn't have had the theme already. So I think it's either the game mechanics and the theme work so well together that you explain the rules by explaining it thematically mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. i prefer not to have a lot of art or theme on it and just understand the gameplay better so mm -hmm. one, one one of two love it could 
this is a interesting like do you think it would be fruitful to have like a very broad theme like say you know cops versus robbers you know just like the idea of like one person like asymmetrically one person's like you know authority and one person's like the crime thing and then you co come in with that broad idea and then you could like narrow it down to like a specific time frame or a specific aesthetic uh you know that you could take to the next stage you know as an example yeah i i actually think if you go with the theme like what what impressed us with kelp was that every like he could explain uh -huh. the rules by explaining the behaviors of sharks and octopuses uh, for instance so he said so the shark has to move forward because sharks yeah. swim forward uh, and the shark every turn it moves at least one space because sharks in real life can't stand still because then they can't breathe so mm -hmm. that was so so tight with the theme that we actually enjoyed just getting getting into the game and getting into the characters if the theme is loose kind of on the on the game design then i would prefer it if the designer also takes it like that it's like it could be this so this is a very open theme. It could be this. It could be also something else. Let's focus on the gameplay. Um, then I would prefer that in a pitch situation. Awesome. Okay. So on, on your website, one of the things you mentioned is, uh, you know, wanting to make sure that there are creative and diverse games in the world. So one, one question I have for you is what makes a game creative in your opinion? I think you've talked a little bit about this, but if you want to expand on it. Um, yeah, I think it's all about the unique experience that you can have when you play a game. So I wouldn't even say a game has to be very complicated in terms of components. You have you can have a very simple card game that is still very creative in gameplay and looking at the illustrations. So for us, it's very important that every game looks really, really good uh, and has really good art on it. And um, that's something that we value because as Sönke always says, there are not a lot of objects or things that you mm -hmm. stare at them for such a long time <laughs> like board games like you yeah. when you play like a certain thing you sit there and you look on the board for two hours and you think what to do and you have your cards so you really like you don't even look at, uh, like, at the Mona Lisa for that long if you go to a museum <laughs> so, but you look at a, at a board game for a real long time so it has to look really good mm -hmm. and uh, give you like an, an enjoyment by by just playing it also visually and um, yeah the Louvre That's needs to open a board game wing i think you know it should be <laughs> just framed cards and boards yeah. you know you can yeah. just <laughs> ponder on your way to the mona lisa mm -hmm. um same question about diverse like what what in your mind makes a game diverse you know what are you looking for when you look for diversity in games i think diversity on the one hand of course who's made the game uh and but also on a diverse experience on playing games like we don't want to make the same games all the time uh, mm -hmm. but you should enjoy the fact that board games can be so different and can give you so many different emotions when playing them so yeah 100 percent. or maybe we just say we just don't want to focus on anything strictly because we just want to have fun <laughs> doing the <laughs> games that we do so there's no need on focusing now on anything <laughs> um so if, if, if you were talking to game designers who were looking for publishers, what advice would you have for them in terms of preparing to present uh, and pitch to publishers? Um, so you should, of course, know your game in and out and have playtested it a lot and just have a really good elevator pitch. 
mm-hmm. one sentence, mm-hmm. two sentences, and that mm-hmm. is what has to catch me. And Love it. and and don't pitch with, with don't pitch don't even pitch with mechanics. I think it's a deck builder mm-hmm. with this. No, that's that compla- comes later. Like yeah. yeah, yeah, like get me into the like why should I play your game kind of experience <laughs> feeling. You know that I think mm-hmm. that's the best thing for us. Yeah, the emotional yeah. core is key. Then that's like, mm-hmm. I think the people who gravitated towards our game, it's not because we, in fact, like some of the biggest fans of our game have not been, uh, who have, haven't come from the TCG side of things. They've actually come from like the tabletop RPG side of things where they they just like a good theme, a good story and feeling as though they're, they're a character doing mm-hmm. something. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I definitely agree with that. It's like, yeah, when somebody starts describing their game as like, like you said, like a deck builder with, you know, uh, what is it worker placement mechanics and stuff like that I just like it's like you know i start getting that uh tinnitus you know ring in my ear where it's just like okay <laughs> get to the part where yeah. i care yeah, yeah I, I mean mm-hmm. we do care about mechanics but on the second conversation kind of or like five Correct. minutes later but catch me first mm-hmm. with a different emotion yeah well and that's that's mm-hmm. what the consumer is going to be looking at right they're going to glance at the box and it's how quickly can you transport them to this world how quickly can you engage the imagination you know, and, and yeah. get them eager to, to experience the game. And then now I'm okay, how does this all work? And so that's, yeah, yeah. That's I mean, cool. for us, I, all the games I want to buy, I just look at the art. And then at some point, Zunka <laughs> is like, should we look at the gameplay too? Is like, yeah, yeah, we can do that later. <laughs> but it looks really good. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah as, as two people who grew up playing Magic, like, you know, we like, it was always the artwork on the magic cards that drew me into the game. And, you know, it's like, as I learned the mm-hmm. game, I learned to love the mechanics and the depth of it. But Magic the Gathering was, you know, it all, it's Siren's Call is always the artwork first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's been kind of the most fun experience for us is going through the art direction process. I mean, obviously, as, as a small operation, you do everything yourself, as you know, and getting mm-hmm. to work with incredible artists from all over the world and really bring things to life. I mean, as creative people, that is, mm-hmm. I mean, if that's all this ever was, like the experience of the art direction, like that would be immensely yeah. satisfying in and of itself. So it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, so I do want to ask you a little bit about your background in filmmaking and mm-hmm. a little bit about how your background in, in filmmaking uh, informed your approach to game making. Mm-hmm. So, um, Ask away. Ha- was there anything you took from your filmmaking into the the world of making games? I think uh, what I, what both worlds have in common is uh, the the world of um, creating things or making projects. Like it's also the same. Uh, I had a startup where I was producing beer, so this is a very different <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> different company again. But my passion is to make things happen so i'm a maker kind of and this is what i love if it's a documentary if it's a game if it's something else i want to i love the process of having this idea and turn it into something that exists so um, i it's not actually not that different to do a film or do a game or do a beer of course you have different uh, suppliers and everything but the the core Mm -hmm. planning of a project and executing a project is not that different we, we also came from a filmmaking background, and I think the mm-hmm. thing that we were most compelled by with games is that you, you know that a game will work by the time you're going to people asking for, mm-hmm. for money. Whereas with mm-hmm. a film, oftentimes, you're trying to sell them on an idea, and then you have the immense pressure of execution. 
Mm-hmm. And there's so many yeah. things that can go wrong. So for us, almost game making felt like a relief in that there wasn't this whole, you know, I need to pitch you on something conceptual and then get, you know, because mm-hmm. I can sit down and I can show it to you and you know it's good before you decide to give me dollar one, yeah. you know. Um, but yeah, but only because, that... sorry, only because crowdfunding is interpreted like that because mm-hmm. uh, people expect to have a kind of finished game already. But I mean, years ago, you could have also just started or tried to crowdfund a game idea and take all your backers into the development process as well. It would have been possible at some point. Yeah, a lot of pressure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I mean, but the equivalent in uh, like movie making, I guess we, we, we were, uh, what is it, narrative driven filmmakers. I mean, documentary probably has a different approach to it. Like, I guess a documentary, you could cut a short little reel of like f- footage that you know you're going to use and maybe get an interview or two to cut it in with. But in like, I guess if you're trying to do that for narrative film, what you could do is like shoot the movie on your iPhones with your friends first and then show them that, like this, show them the script acted out that way and, and hope that that sells it. It's just like, I guess for us, it was just like, we, we can make it in Tabletop Simulator or well, at the time it was Tabletopia. Mm-hmm. And then we can invite anybody to come over and try it out and they will see the experience. They'll be able to give us feedback that we can execute upon. So I think that that mm-hmm. was, you know, in that sense, it's like, you know, you can get much further into the process and be so much closer to the final product and actually show people that versus like in filmmaking where you can barely, you know, there, there are methods, but it, it's still a high cost ceiling, you know, even just to get mm-hmm. your friends together and shoot on iPhones and edit that footage together. That's still a lot of time and potentially a lot of money versus like the For amount sure. of money that Danny and I put into this before, you know, put into X Seekers of Fortune before we were ready to start taking on um, you know, like the uh, the costly things, we were basically able to show the mm-hmm. game off for, I don't want to say zero dollars, it wasn't zero dollars, but you know, probably fewer than a thousand. Um, yeah. so, and it's yeah, also I a process we that can be uh, understood better by people that follow you, even if the game isn't complete, they can understand whatever version you put out there versus a film. Mm-hmm. If you if you publish a, like a, um, ju- just a script or something, people don't have an idea what actually the end result will be. So it's much mm-hmm. easier to get people along and just to to follow the project. Mm-hmm. Was World's Fastest your first documentary, or was elsewhere? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, and the World's Fastest was the first one we made. Yeah. So I actually had quit my job um, in the agency I was working before and I wanted to freelance because I noticed I can just have more free time and earn more money if I freelance <laughs> versus <laughs> being in a work for a big company. And I think three weeks after freelancing, I met the director of the World's Fastest and I was like, oh yeah, let's do that project. So I canceled all my freelance projects and <laughs> started working on the <laughs> unpaid documentary. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Um, that was also our first Kickstarter campaign too. I didn't oh, wow. have a clue how Kickstarter works back then. Oh my mm-hmm. goodness! And was it successful? It was. It was the worst thirty days of my life. <laughs> wow. Oh man! It was just from yeah. the stress of it, or there was other conspiring from, factors. 
Yeah. No, so we knew we would need to have a trailer. So the world's fastest was shot in, in the US. So we traveled to the US for mm-hmm. a week and we shot some scenes with the protagonist. We, we knew how the storyline would be and everything. Um, and we had a great trailer and then we prepared the Kickstarter page. We launched and then we were like, so let's tell people about it. We didn't know anything about doing pre-marketing oh, before yeah. a Kickstarter. So that's why it was like, I felt like, I don't know how you call those people that just uh, come from weird companies that knock on your door with like dark suits and want to <laughs> grab money out of you. So I felt like such mm-hmm. a person. <laughs> and was just al- yeah. yeah, no, like, uh, like, like someone who's just, just trying to collect debt or something like that. So yeah, I felt yeah. like, like oh, was pressing even people worse. for money. I felt, yeah, I felt so bad because I felt like, oh my God. And we, our goal was, I think, 58,000 euros back then. Mm. Mm. which is super realistic to make a documentary i mean it wasn't even a third of our budget but uh, um, because we had other funding options and um, and we managed to get sixty-seven thousand in the end but we funded like three or four days before the campaign ended so i i felt like i had to really go out and and promote this project and ask people to be involved and fund it which was extremely stressful Um, it was a very different different situation back then because we didn't know the concept of you have to do the campaign before the campaign um, <laughs> mm-hmm. but that's that's this is how it works now and for kelp we did like eight months of campaign before the campaign yeah uh, very different situation now and and did you have a different approach by the time you got to elsewhere or how did how did you get to the because elsewhere was that something that he had already filmed before yeah. coming to you yeah, so Elsewhere Alone in Africa is a documentary about a young man uh, who's not that young anymore, uh, <laughs> who traveled across Africa by bike uh, by himself and he filmed everything. That's and um, we actually were producers on this film before we made the, the campaign. And we actually um, had the idea to make a crowdfunding, not to finance the making of the film that we did ourselves, we put our money into it. Uh, but mm-hmm. we um, wanted to do a crowdfunding campaign to finance a tour across Germany where he went to all the cinemas oh, and wow. uh, ah. to promote the cinema tour. That was a different approach because we knew the stress we had from the project before. We knew we are not going to, we don't want to have that level of stress with this project. We want to just be able to make it really good. And then we'll use crowdfunding also as an advertisement platform, get people involved and tell people all about our cinema tour that we want to make and sell some DVDs. Because actually back then, 2018, when we did it, people bought DVDs. Um, wow, the world changes so fast. <laughs> it's yeah, so fast. I, know. Yeah. I think the death, for me, the death of the DVD market was kind of the death of like my, my dreams of being a actual, you know, a filmmaker because I feel like that's where you made your money. I think even Matt Damon said it in an interview on mm-hmm. Hot Ones. It's just like, without that, it's like, I don't see the point for me personally, I, I don't see the point of trying to chase streaming and it just doesn't feel yeah. like a, a movie can make back its budget uh, with streaming, at least the budgets that you want to put into it. Um, mm, yeah. Well, so you've had yes. experienced crowdfunding. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, um, yeah, we had a different approach of financing the film back then because um, we I didn't want to go to like official film funds in Germany. I actually started a conversation with one in Hamburg. They told us no one knows you. Uh, you're not going to get funding. 
which I was like, oh, nice, that's what a film fund <laughs> is all about. <laughs> if you have to be known, okay. Um, so we actually looked at what is the film about? It's about someone who rides a bike. We looked at the bike. We looked at, oh, you have so many components on a bike. Let's ask the manufacturers of those components if they want to give us money if, so, so we can make the film. Mm -hmm. And we got 35,000 euros together from all the bike companies. We just approached them and we said, hey, you, we we're going to put you on the credits and we'll give you some um, social media content for your channels and you can be part of the film. And uh, that was pretty good. Yeah. That's a great yeah. idea. That's a really good idea. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Do you think that you'll end up making any more films? Maybe. Never say never to create a project. <laughs> I, <don't know>. yeah, <laughs> I like that answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Joel, I think you had Was a question a you wanted to ask. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to see, you know, we were talking about crowdfunding and, you know, you have experienced crowdfunding films and you have experienced crowdfunding games. Uh, which one did you find more challenging and what did you think were the main differences between those two? Oh, definitely the film. That was more challenging because crowdfunding is in the end kind of a pre-order platform where you have to wait a long mm -hmm. time. But mm -hmm. you, with games, you show a product and people get something in their hand. With a film, maybe they get a DVD, not anymore. They get a streaming link or something, but they don't own anything that mm -hmm. they can be excited about. Yeah. And uh, mm -hmm. that's way more difficult to, to explain for sure. One of, I had some friends reach out to me recently who I had produced for in the past and <clears throat> they they wanted me to come and help them raise money and I'm like, "Well, what what is your plan to get money back into the hands of your investors?" And they're like, "Well, you know, it's it's kind of about supporting the arts." And I'm like, "Okay, but that's not that mm -hmm. compelling <laughs> for people yeah. who are, don't have that much money to shell it out like, "Oh, mm -hmm. you got to be part of this." Maybe if it's something they're really passionate about, but at least with a game, right? You're delivering a product. So Yeah, exactly. I could see yeah. why that would be many more times difficult, much more difficult uh, mm -hmm. with the, mm -hmm. the film. That's mm -hmm. probably why so many people are moving, like so many creatives are moving to the game making space versus the you know uh, filmmaking space. Like that's almost like a legacy art form at this point versus like the cutting edge of uh, you know the, the an expanding market. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, I think any, that's did you all of our more? interview questions. No, that's all I got. <laughs> yeah. I'm out. <laughs> for, for the most part, yeah, I know. We we got all that done and just a little well over an hour and a half. Um, well, Danny, was there any uh, the key takeaways that you had from this conversation that you you thought maybe you could sum up? Yeah, I mean, I th I think one of the things I've learned so much from from listening to Laya is just that you know, with complex problems, there's not one one size fits all solutions. You really have to look at what you're you're trying to accomplish, study all the different pieces and figure out how to assemble that unique puzzle and don't look at somebody else's roadmap and assume that you can just apply it to yourself. Um, you know, again, I know it's not really part of, of, of the game conversation, but just the ingenuity of being able to look at the the bike and say, how can we how can we find someone who will support us and just breaking down the bicycle into its components and going to the manufacturers and understanding that they would find value in the content that you could create and, and the exposure that it would bring for their, I mean, it's the best content you could get in the world. You, you know, mm -hmm. none of those companies could afford to send someone to Africa to go across Africa and, and use their, so um, yeah, no, I found that all very, very, very inspiring. So that's, that's my big takeaway from, from today's <laughs> conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, and mine is just 
you know, game making is kind of where it's at right now. And like, there's just so much exciting, you know, so much exciting terrain. Um, and when you hear a great pitch, you know, just like, you know, pursue the thing that makes your brain go haywire and makes you think at a thousand <laughs> miles a minute, you know, that's once, once you, once you get to that place, once you start, you know, once your brain starts really processing that, that means, okay, I think I found what I'm supposed to be doing right now. And yeah, leave yourself yeah, open mm -hmm. for different creative projects. You know, like Laya said, it's like, there might be a film in the future for her. Uh, you know, there's, you don't know what your final form is going to be. Pursue the idea, pursue the meaning, and then let it take the final form of what it's meant to be. Yeah, I mean, I've always, I'm, I'm a total workaholic. Like I work seven days a week <laughs> almost, and I'm mm -hmm. always on my phone and computer because <laughs> I'm working. And uh, <laughs> I always told myself like, I have to really love what I do because I spend so much time on it. <laughs> so uh, I, I'm, we're trying to make our hobbies, our, 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 our work kind of. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah, for I, sure. I agree 100%. Well, that we, we definitely live in that working 24-7 mode. I mean, it, it, when you love something, it's hard to stop. You know, you're mm -hmm. always just, you mm -hmm. know, you want to move the piece down the board, <laughs> so mm -hmm. to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's, and it, it constantly brings up new challenges, new things for us to think about. And we're going to keep digging into those new challenges and the, those new frontiers and tell you our experiences through the podcast. So if you haven't already, please subscribe to our channel. And while you're subscribing, just drop down and ring that bell because then you'll that bell will ring when our podcast is hot and fresh out of the oven for you each week so you can get it right at the uh, right when it comes out um and if you're not a youtube viewer we highly recommend we do do visuals and you know we're, we're pretty you know handsome people i would say but if you don't do youtube you can always find us on any of your podcasting apps apple podcast uh, uh, I'm sure Spotify, LastCast, anywhere that you can find podcasts, you can find us. And while you're there, if you don't mind, just stop by and give us a little review. All we ask is for five stars. We're a five-star podcast, so you get leave a five-star review. It's just, you know, we give these to you for free, so why don't you give us to that in return? Well, if with all that said, review, Dane, just really emphasize Joel in that review, please. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Keep me out of it. <laughs> <laughs> keep his name out of your damn mouth or off your damn keyboard all right so danny i believe it is time for our something random this week and i'm actually pretty excited because you told me to go grab my whiteboard and my uh dry erase marker uh so i'm i'm pretty excited about what this is all going to involve so why don't you pitch it to us yeah absolutely so this is going to be another quiz head-to-head -head oh, quiz God. show okay. mm -hmm. and it is mm. a cinema inspired uh, a cinema quiz that's inspired by sharks and octopuses so oh <laughs> and it is i'm not gonna i think i think i think there's definitely some answers that are some some questions that are okay and some of them that are quite difficult so <laughs> great looking forward <laughs> yeah absolutely so um I will give the first question, Joel. You might have to turn your camera on for this so that we can see oh, yeah, that's right. your answers. So what I'll do is I'll ask the question. These are all multiple choice. I'll give you your options, and then you'll write down what your answer is. And whoever has the most points at the end wins. All right. Okay. So question number one. Which film 
considered a pioneering work in underwater documentary, was filmed by Jacques Cousteau and won the Palme d'Or at Cannes. Is it A, The Blue Planet, B, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, C, Le Moon du Silence, The Silent World, or D, Ocean World 3D? Wow, that's really a serious question. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm going to drop into chat the <laughs> options so that you can, you, I'll, I'll, in fact, I'll put the whole question in there so that you guys can visually read it. Are we going to reveal our answers one at a time or will we reveal our answers Jacques all Cousteau. the end? You're putting me on the spot. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll just say last time we did this on, on, a, on a show, Joel and, and the guest got all the questions wrong. So okay. <laughs> I, I, we're gonna apologies in advance. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, D Danny likes his trivia to be at je Jeopardy level. I see. Right. Uh, yes. I'm going to go with this one. Okay. Yeah. And what do you got, Joel? Oh, we're do oh, oh, sorry. Time. I answered C, the silent All right. world. All right. And Laya had B, life aquatic. And the answer is silent world. So that's one point to Joel. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so on the on the hills of, of the Life Aquatic, in <laughs> in which Wes Anderson film does a character named Steve Zissou seek revenge on a mystical shark that killed his partner? A. Rushmore. B. Jarjeling Limited. C. The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. Or D. Moonrise Kingdom. And I've dropped that into chat. Hmm. Which one will this will be? <laughs> <laughs> this is kind of like uh, this is how American tests are uh, Lila uh, Laya, is where if you read through the entire test half the questions will answer the other half of the questions and that's how <laughs> yeah, our standardized yeah, yeah. testing I works that. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed that that's All the right. second yeah. question <laughs> there we go and what do you got Joel boom All right. C the life aquatic that's one point oh, to each of the... you my, yeah. my actual favorite Wes Anderson movie personally yeah, that's mine as well. All right, so for the okay. next question, The Abyss, directed by James Cameron, features an underwater encounter with a non-terrestrial intelligence. What is the primary setting for this film? Is it A, a submarine, B, an oil rig, C, a deep sea trench, or D, an underwater research station? It's something underwater. <laughs> yeah, I'm all of sure. the above. If you were to ask me, I would say all th all four of those were probably locations in the film. So the question is, what is the primary location? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going to go. Uh, so, uh, uh, I think I know which one I'm going with. Do you know which one you're going with? I'm gonna guess. Um, let's go with D. All right, and Joel, okay. what do you got? I put C, a deep sea trench. Laya got it, Joel did not. They were tied two to two. Oh, woo! <laughs> what? <laughs> As I said though, I bet if I watch the movie, a deep sea trench is a location in the film. Perhaps. Question four, Perhaps. which documentary <laughs> directed by Rob Stewart aims to dispel myths about sharks and expose the shark fin industry? Is it A, Blue Ocean, B, Shark Water, C, The Cove, or D, Blackfish? Oh, I've seen The Cove and Blackfish, but I don't know who directed them. Uh, what were the first two options, Danny? Shark Fin? 
We have A, Blue Ocean, B, Shark Water, C, The Cove, D, Blackfish, and the question is, which documentary directed by Rob Stewart aims to dispel myths about sharks and expose the shark fin industry? Yeah, I also forgot. You are dropping these in the chat, so I could be reading that there. <laughs> um, so the last question proved one my, my assumption from the first two questions wrong, which was Danny was going to make all the answers C. So uh, I, yeah. I don't think now it can just default to C. Now the cove is about dolphins and blackfish is about orcas. Yeah. So yeah, probably That's why water. I went with B, shark, shark water. water. Yeah, yeah. What do you got, Wait. Laya? Well, yeah, I said shark water. All right. Because of the name. <laughs> three to three, tied up. You both oh, are correct. Tied up. All right. Yep. Okay. In 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, a film adaptation of Jules Verne's novel, what is the name of the submarine captained by, captained by Nemo? Is it A, the Nautilus, B, the Neptune, C, the Nereus, or D, the Poseidon? I don't know how to spell that, but I think I know which one I'm going In 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, a film adaptation of Jules Verne's novel, what is the name of the submarine captained by Nemo? A, the Nautilus, B, the Neptune, C, the Neris, or D, the Poseidon. Okay. I'm ready when you are. I am. I'm going with A. Okay. <laughs> I am going with oh. A as well. <laughs> All right. It is, it is tied at 4-4. Four, four. You guys are both correct. Oh, wow. And uh, we're on to question six. It was the Nautilus. How many six. questions are there? There are 10. So oh, we wow. are okay. almost there. <laughs> Which film there. features a rare portrayal of a giant octopus as the main antagonist terrorizing the coast of California? A, it came from beneath the sea. B, tentacles. C, the beast. Or D, mega shark versus giant arc octopus <laughs> well that's a movie at least <laughs> that I know of. <laughs> uh, which film features a rare portrayal of a giant octopus as the main protagonist terrorizing the coast of california a it came from beneath the sea b tentacles c the beast or d mega shark versus giant octopus okay i'm gonna go with d <laughs> uh, okay, so one of us is going to be well. We could both be wrong. I'm going with A. It came from beneath the sea. It is A. It came beneath the sea. So that is Joel for one. So it is five four, with Joel in the lead. And now for question seven: In which French film does an octopus play a significant role, symbolizing the protagonist's struggle and connection with nature? Is it A. Amelie? B, the big blue, la grande bleue, oceans, or la vive aquatique. And I apologize for not being able to pronounce any French words. <laughs> I know which one it isn't. Um. Okay. I was, yeah, I was about to say, this is, this is like one of those places where like my film, film blind spot bites me in the ass because I had never have watched Amelie. But I have watched Amelie, but I don't remember an octopus being there. Yeah, let's see. I'm going to go with. But maybe it that is one. that. 
I have a... Yeah, I can't tell you because I usually have a pretty good memory for movies. So if I had seen Amelie, I would know for sure. And it's the, it's the type of weird thing that I could imagine being in Amelie. So I almost went with it as a trick question. But I yeah, decided yeah. on which one I'm going with. <laughs> All right, what do you got? I'm going with Amelie. Amelie. I'm going with the big blue. It is the big blue. So oh. Joel has pulled ahead six to four, but there are enough questions for a comeback. So let's, I'm uh, so bad at film quiz. <laughs> you should have told me that. It's not my expertise. You know. <laughs> should have given you a study guide. A <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, also, I mean, this is uh, a class. Like, I, I don't know how, what the education system's like in Germany, but Americans are pr pretty programmed to do pretty well at multiple choice questions. So I could have the home field advantage here. And Joel spent like, a lot of time yeah. working in movie theaters. And, and uh, I did. I did. I, about right, a decade of my eight. life, actually. Mm-hmm. Shark Tale, an animated film that features a vegetarian shark, is a production of which studio? A, Pixar Animation Studios, B, DreamWorks Animation, C, Walt Disney Pictures, or D, Blue Sky Studio? Shark Tale, an animated film that features a vegetarian shark, is a production of which studio? Pixar, DreamWorks, Disney, or Blue Sky? Uh, it's part of the pun, but I didn't even realize that was the hook to Shark Tale. <laughs> All right, I'm ready. I, I'm guessing DreamWorks. All right. I too Joel, you guess DreamWorks. All right, you both got it. So it is seven to five. Okay, number nine. Which documentary focuses on the complex intelligence and emotional capacities of octopuses, specifically through the lens of one diver's relationship with an octopus? A, octopus making contact. B, the octopus teacher, C, my octopus teacher, or D, the soul of an octopus? That I know. Man. <sighs> uh, yeah, I think that you had to, that's, that's how they get you in the multiple choice. Okay. I'm just gonna go with the vanity of Americans. Are we ready? Yep. Yeah. I'm Kay. going with C, my octopus teacher. All right. You're both I correct. Did as well. So it is. That was actually six. the inspiration for Kelp. Was it really? Really? Yeah. I was wondering about that. Yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. We could have. Yeah. That, I, I, it made a big, yet again, pardon the plot. It made a big splash here in America. Uh, <laughs> you know, I knew about it, but I never got to see it. So uh, it would be you, maybe a you good should movie see it? board game. Yeah. Mm hmm. You should a see good it. Movie you can board game pairing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You can when you watch it totally ignore the story of the guy if you want, because uh, some people like like it, others don't. Uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have you watched it? Not yet. It's high on okay. my list of, of films to watch. Yeah, it is very nice. It's super informative, but the mm -hmm. the story of. Mm -hmm this this uh, diver having a, a midlife crisis and then saying I'm gonna go diving every day instead of like other people would be like oh maybe you spend time with your family so yeah. that's a bit yeah. controversial but uh, yeah he could do that so cool. I heard about as much I heard like man that movie would have been great if it wasn't for his story uh, that also reminds me it's of a the very House privileged story oh yeah yeah 
being able to leave your family behind to go go swim with an octopus seems. Li yeah, he lives like uh, right at the beach in South Africa in a beautiful house, and oh, wow. the whole film begins like how his life is so dramatic and he needs to change it. It's like if you live in a house like that, I don't know if it can be <laughs> that bad. But yeah, I mean, whatever. It's one of the things All I try right. to remind myself is no matter how, what level you ascend to, you're always going to have worries and problems and, you know, like want something different. So just uh, try to remind yourself that it's not going to change as you go up the ladder, at least that aspect mm -hmm. of it. You're always going to be miserable. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. A million dollar Kickstarter doesn't absolve you of worry, correct? Mm -hmm. <laughs> correct. <laughs> it adds yes. to the worry, I assume. <laughs> Uh, all right, question 10. Open Water, a film based on true events, showcases the survival struggle of two divers left behind in shark-infested waters. What distinguishes the film's approach to storytelling? A, use of actual footage. B, minimalist cast and setting. C, nonlinear narrative. Or D, animation and live action blend. And that question again is, Open Water, a film based on true events, showcases the survival struggle of two divers left behind in shark-infested waters. What distinguishes the film's approach to storytelling? A, use of actual footage. B, minimalist cast and setting. C, nonlinear narrative. And D, animation and live action blend. I haven't watched it, so Yet again, I can't one of those... say it. Wait, you can't say what? I haven't watched the film, so I don't know. Okay. Oh, okay. I have I have an assumption. I'm just going to say I feel like this is one of those questions where any one of those answers could be true about the film, but I know which one I I believe would be what they would have sold the film on in the marketing, like when the actors talk about it and stuff like that. Are we ready? Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. I go with All right. B. Well, no. I went with B as well, so no matter what, yeah. we, <laughs> you're both the right. Score stays the same. All right. Yes. <laughs> All right. I think I think Joel wins nine to seven. Very good showing Dang. on both parts, though. I don't Very think I would have guessing been... on my part. <laughs> I, I, I would have scored I would about what I scored. I think at best, <laughs> I would have done yeah. much worse. <laughs> I would I would litigate the uh, the the one that I missed the deep sea trench and the abyss. I might have to go and watch the abyss again. I think they just released it like uh, actual restoration, which has been controversial. It hasn't gotten a restoration, but I want to watch the movie again and see how much of it takes place at deep sea trench because I think a lot of it does. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> he, he can't so get my one sour wrong. <laughs> no, well, if I get two wrong, that's fine. But if I get one wrong, that's when I get like turned, <laughs> triggered, as you would say. All right. Well, that's well all that got. was a great game, Danny. Yeah, I, th I had a great time playing that one. Thank you for uh, supporting me in my American education with the multiple choice. Uh, <laughs> Laya, did, uh, are multiple choice questions big in Germany as well when in high school? I don't remember. I don't think in <laughs> high school, to be honest. Maybe in university, but I studied in Holland, so I don't know how German universities are. I think they have multiple questions, too. I didn't, though. You were oh, okay. born in Open Spain, questions. Right? I was born in Spain, yeah. In Valencia, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. And oh, wow. when did you move to Germany? Or did you When I was to... 11. Yeah. Oh, okay. And then mm -hmm. you grew up in Spain wow. for the first 11 years of your life? Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Wow. Okay. Well, hopefully we can get you back on the show to go more into the European education system. You know, I think that there's a game <laughs> concept somewhere buried in there. But uh, I, before we get out of here, 
Playa, where would you like to be found? Where should people find you online and find out what you and your and Wonderbow are up to? We have um, Wonderbow Games as a handle across all platforms. We are not active on, on all platforms, but mainly <laughs> on Instagram. Uh, and we were actually pretty active on TikTok a while ago, but it's just we have too much on our plate to do more mm -hmm. social media content. Um, our website is active. Our Discord is pretty active too. So on our website, you can find a link to our Discord, which is uh, a very nice community that we have. Well, Danny, do you have any final thoughts before we get out of here? Uh, well, I, I definitely want to check out Elsewhere, um, Alone in Africa. That seems like an amazing documentary, and uh, I've been fascinated with the uh, African continent uh, since we've started developing Dynasty, especially with Kia. So I think that would be a, a fun one to yeah, you can actually watch it on YouTube. It's uh, it's on oh, an really? official YouTube in the US. Yeah, I have to f find the link because I can't access the link from Europe, but it's an <laughs> official YouTube channel where we have uploaded it. Yeah, Awesome, I'll check oh. it out. Cool. Yeah, send that to us and we'll put it in the show notes. Um, but otherwise, thank you so much, Laia, for joining us. Danny, thank you for, you know, being here as my co-host. I always appreciate, I always appreciate it. Thank you for, uh, you know, preparing this interview. And uh, this has been Danny. I've been Joel, reminding you that you must start somewhere. So why not here? Thanks for listening. Theme music by James Holden. Produced and edited by William Wymore.